Hi, this is Dr. Shane, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Einstein A Gogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein A Gogo's Twitter account or Facebook page. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein A Gogo on Triple R. Not the familiar voice you're expecting. Dr. Shane, International Man of Mystery, is at an international archery competition, I believe, today. I don't know if he's participating. I mean, I've seen... He said that he was. Have you you seen how thick his glasses are? I'm not sure I buy that. When he said, I was like, scientists are uh, complicated and surprising. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I'm not sure if I'm buying it. But anyway, here we are in the studio. I'm Dr. Laura. With me is Dr. Ray. Good morning. Good morning. And Dr. Linden. Good morning. We have a science um, show with you. We have three guests in the green room, two from the Bionics Institute in Melbourne, and also we're going to be discussing the public health emergency that is COVID-19 with Dr. Catherine Snow from Melbourne School of Population and Global Health. But before we get into that, we've got the top week's news coming to you. Dr. Ray, what do you have for us? Oh, I have a very exciting story. So... um, Physicists at the University of Otago. So this is an awesome story about New Zealand quantum physics. You look so excited right now. Well, first I saw, oh, wow, scientists actually grabbed three individual atoms and and caused them to react to a molecule. And they watched them react. And I went, well, that sounds really new. And I went, oh, wow, and it's from the University of Otago. How awesome is that? So... um, because I didn't, I didn't know they had a very big quantum physics program there, but they do. And so what these researchers have done for the first time is grabbed three individual rubidium atoms in an ultra-high vacuum. So they just have these three atoms. And they grab them separately in what are called optical traps or optical tweezers, which are highly focused lasers, which can hold individual atoms. And so what they did was they actually took the three atoms all in individual lasers and combined them into one little pot or optical trap and watched them react. And it was the first time they've ever observed reactions like this on individual atoms. Normally, they look at clouds of atoms and kind of get a, like an average behavior and figure out what happens. But here, they actually combined three atoms together. And so what happens is you take three atoms together, two of them form a molecule, and the other one just gets kicked out. Now, what's weird about that is if you just put two atoms together, they don't form a molecule. You need all three of them there, but only two of them end up being a, a molecule. They, they, they kick out a little bit of energy, and the third molecule gets some energy, too. This is not a person analogy. Atoms do not have I just, feelings. I know where you were going on that. I was going with threesome, but I'm going yeah. to stop right there. This has just devolved into smart. We've been on the, ra- the, the airwaves for less than four minutes. You two can't be trusted. No. So what, what, what's really exciting about this is is when, when it actually happened, the the rate at which it happened, the speeds, the energies that came out are actually a little different than what's been predicted by theories. So it's, it's unusual to get a quantum observation that's first in the world that actually says, hey, the theory needs some revision. And they think they know why, but it's really exciting for them. And, and why they were even more excited about it is they went, oh, if you can do this with these three atoms, maybe they can start building molecules up an atom at a time this way. And that's one of the key parts that you need for quantum technologies. If you look at quantum encryption or uh, quantum computing, that's really about aligning individual atoms in a particular way. A lot of that's been done so far with more complicated pathways that are similar to how we make microprocessors. So this might be a new way to put together atoms for quantum technology, so they're quite excited about that. Actually, that's pretty awesome. I was super skeptical when you were like jumping up and down being so excited, but... (laughs) Oh, is that you? normally a sign of, oh, no, I was this like, is oh, going to be very technical. Yeah, I was like, this is cute. 
anyway, yeah. first time in the world, is that because of the tweezers? You know, they well, couldn't it's, pick it's them actually, up before? Well, so that's a great question. So it's the first time they were able to do this with three atoms. Normally they do it with a cloud of them. Now, we've had optical tweezers around for a bit, but the fact that they used them like this was a first time. The idea of, of an optical tweezer is kind of crazy because they said they did this at just above zero Kelvin. So basically minus 273 Celsius was how they did that. And, and I went, oh, wait, that... Oh, you have to think about that. What temperature means to an individual atom is different than what temperature means to you and I. You know, we think cooling things down, an air conditioner or refrigeration unit or liquid nitrogen to really cool something down. But here, atoms, fundamentally, temperature is just atoms vibrating. So they jiggle around. So the tweezers, those lasers, when they focus them down, they prevent those atoms from jiggling. That makes so much sense. So, so they actually cool them down just because they can't move. I mean, normally Wait, the tweezers cool them down. Yeah, the oh, laser. So the laser oh. imparts a force because it's an optical laser. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's an optical force. The laser photons actually have a force. That's where we get solar winds from, and why in sci-fi movies they talk about solar sails. They're talking about light pressure from 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 the sun. So the lasers actually those photons impart a force and hold the atoms in place. And by holding them in place, they don't jiggle, so they actually cool down. That's that's what it means to be have an atom be cold. I mean, you can, you can't hold a person and oh they're colder because you, you they just haven't moved. But for atoms, temperature means jiggling. That is very cool. That's super interesting. I yeah. love it. And we've hit our quota of saying laser for the show already. <laughs> Thank that's you. Good too. And the forces came Wait. up a couple of times as well. <laughs> well. I have an optical tweezers in my lab, so I thought it was kind of cool. But I, I'll have you know, I at no point did I say laser with quote marks or on sharks. So. <laughs> Dr. Linden. That's good. Good to see we're maintaining quality, even though Dr. Shane is away on his mysterious international archery competition. Uh, I was looking into some climate change stuff this week. Surprise, surprise. But I was looking, looking at a couple of papers that have been published in the last fortnight about climate change and plants, right? One of the stories that we hear, one of the messages that's kind of gets circulated around is that one of the small benefits of increased carbon dioxide in the atmosphere is that plants will be happier. They've got more food, so there'll be more photosynthesis, so we'll have more plants. And that could be good for agricultural production, forests, these kinds of things. This is a, this is a message that gets out and is sort of used by some sections of the community more than other sections of the community. But a couple of papers have come out in the last fortnight that have just shown a bit more light on actually how complicated this kind of relationship is, right? So there was a paper that was published in Nature Climate Change earlier in the week, and it was looking at um, the date at which leaves come out in the Northern Hemisphere. So looking at the Northern Hemisphere here in the wintertime, lots of the trees lose their leaves, and then they come out in the springtime. I'm speaking to, to people for from the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, went, Glad you know. Yeah, I'm no? like, oh yeah, well yeah, because you move here and you go, well, the leaves are dropping all year round. Yeah, well, no, in the Northern Hemisphere, the leaves drop in the winter and then they come out in the springtime, and they have been happening. That's been happening earlier and earlier as temperatures increase. And so these guys used a big computer model simulation of the Earth, and they said, oh, what do you think would happen if we forced this? Normally, in that computer model, you kind of tell the model at what date. The, flood, the, the leaves will start coming out. But we have seen an increase of about three to four days per decade. Spring, as you define it by leaves coming out, uh, has been, is happening three to four days earlier per decade. And they said, right, what if we do that in the model? What would happen there? And what they found was that if you force that and say, right, springs, as by that definition, is going to happen 12 days earlier, then what you get is more leaf coverage you get more water vapor in the atmosphere you get more clouds and that actually leads to less snow which leads to more warming right 
So more greening of the trees actually leads to a positive feedback loop of more warming in particular parts of the Northern Hemisphere, particularly very snowy parts like in the Canadian Arctic and in parts of Siberia, which sucks, right? So positive feedback, not so good. Oh, you're not convinced, Ray? Ray's looking confused. No, I was just thinking, well, there goes that silver lining about plants being healthy. Well, exactly right. And this other, so this other paper that I also read was looking at, um, this was a combination between forestry scientists and atmospheric scientists trying to figure out, okay, well, another thing that people say, oh, it will be good if plants are more efficient and more effective because there's more CO2, so they won't need as much water. Ha ha. And then we'll have more water in our systems, which is really good because we need water. But... This other study that I was looking at said, okay, well, let's have a look at that. And they used a different computer model to represent what was going on. And they kind of split out all the different features. This was in the southern east of the US. They said, okay, let's look at how efficient plants are at taking up water. Let's look at how rain patterns change. Let look, let's look at all these different things. And they said, they actually found that, all right, if you've got a plant that's more efficient at using water, that's great. But it will also grow more because there's more CO2. So there'll be more leaves. So there won't be any extra water in the system. Those two things counter counteract each other. So we've got a positive feedback loop where leaves coming out early and making things warmer and a kind of negative feedback loop where you've got more efficient plants but more leaves, so less water availability. So I guess the reason I wanted to bring these two stories together was to talk about how important this use of vegetation is in climate change stuff and also how freaking complicated it is to try to figure out how this stuff might change in the future. This hasn't got anything to do with the particular, hasn't considered the types of plants, hasn't considered changes in land use, hasn't considered temperature increases, which can also affect sort of plant health, hasn't considered if the sources of moisture like rainfall will move around. And this is kind of going right down to the cellular level of plant leaf behaviour and, oh, it's just, it's so much. There's so much going on and I just thought this is not considered in lots of discussions that, that are happening around the place. So there, is there another silver lining And if you grow more plants? I mean, we just had, last week we were talking about bushfires and the implications there and one of the, the things was forest main, one of their main sinks for carbon is trees. Mm-hmm. So if you're growing more trees, you might at the same time be a better sink for carbon but i don't know if people have factored in all these complications about how much spring changes how much how how much leaf coverage you get how much does that translate into plant growth and how much does that actually translate into carbon sequestration because you get a lot more leaves on one tree i don't i doubt it's a linear relationship no i I don't have no idea about that and also whether carbon uptake of a plant uh, increases or decreases as it ages these kinds of things whether different species are good at soaking that up you probably need to take into account the soil type as well and then if you have more leaf litter actually that's where some of the carbon is exactly yeah it's um It's just obscenely complicated. Obscenely complicated. It's just showing us how much we really don't know. Well, yeah, and how how many different things we still have to explore and how you do that complicated maths. Thank God for scientists. (laughs) I think I just told you a bunch of unknown things. Sorry about that. Come on, tell me, Dr. Laura, that you have something a little bit more positive. Positive never. The interesting (laughs) stories uh, for me are always a little bit like, what? Okay, I like the obscure. So... um, Something that I really enjoyed reading this week is that this week saw the first reporting of the um, first known diagnosis of urinary autobrewery syndrome. And this is where the bladder literally brews its own alcohol. 
You're going to have to unpack that one for <laughs> yes, us. Uh, <laughs> okay. So first I will tell you about the patient. Okay, so this is the first patient. She was a 60-year-old woman, 61-year-old woman. She was suffering from cirrhosis, and she was on the waiting list for a liver transplant. Now, unfortunately for her, like, even though she kept denying that she was um, drinking, her, you know, they kept testing her urine for alcohol, and it kept coming up positive. And so they took her off the waiting list for a transplant, and they checked her in. They said, you need to go to alcohol abuse clinics. And she was like, no, 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 but I'm not drinking. And, of course, nobody believes you because they're like, dude, there's, like, alcohol in your urine. Um, so she, go, she was referred to treatment for alcohol abuse, but she kind of went off and saw specialists at the University of Pittsburgh. And they did more tests on her, and they found that, yes, there's ethanol in her urine. There's also a high amount of yeast in her bladder, and there's no ethanol in the blood. So the no ethanol in the blood gives you, you know, okay, so this isn't alcohol. Something's going on in the bladder. Now, when we think about brewing beer... Yeast, of course, you know, you get yeast ferments, you know, sugars from grains into alcohol. And that's exactly what was happening in her bladder. So it was an overgrowth of yeast, which is, you know, converting the carbohydrates or sugars into ethanol. Now, this lady also had very poorly controlled diabetes. So she had a high, so put in that combination, high amount of sugar, high amount of yeast, and then you're going to get that fermentation to alcohol in the bladder. Now... I'm talking about this woman was the first case of bladder fermentation, but this has been, there's a handful of cases, cases that have been diagnosed across, um, especially the United States, um, of similar cases of gut fermentation. And this, again, is yeast accumulating in the GI tract. And this, you know, when you read some of the case reports, and of course, because it's, this is so rare and so obscure, it's always misdiagnosed. And there's, the, there's these cases I was reading about, about someone being accused of drunk driving, and it's just because they've had a meal, and so the carbohydrates getting converted to ethanol. So they're, and you know, these people, they get intoxicated. So they have symptoms of being drunk. You can smell alcohol on the breath. All, that, all those sort of into- classic sort of drunk sin- you know, syndromes are associated with these people. So you can imagine this would lead to depression, sort of, you know, maybe yeah. breakup of relationships, because what are you hiding? It's not me. It's, it's the yeast in my gut. So what, with regards to what triggers this, you're not born with this syndrome. It's like very multifactorial. So this can often be triggered by really poor diet, other complications such as diabetes or obesity, and it can be triggered by having a high bout of antibiotics. So imagine if you take a load of antibiotics and you've already kind of, you've got to set up for a high amount of sugar, then you're wiping out your, you know, your natural flora of commensals. And then these yeasts, which are sort of part of our natural flora, but they're sort of at a really low level, like Saccharomyces or Candida, they can outgrow, become pathogenic, overtake, and then start converting the sugar into alcohol. So what happened to this poor 61-year-old? Lady, I don't think she's back on the liver transplant list. Because oh, is there any kind of treatment? Treatment. So you've really just got to self-monitor. So after a really big meal, that's when you're going to get the spike in the drunk syndrome and the sort of intoxicated syndrome um, symptoms. So you can monitor it with probiotics to really keep the amount of yeast down and also by really controlling your diet and taking the sugar out of your diet. And for this lady, in her case, controlling the diabetes, you know, mm. really getting that under control would help. Wow. I know, these wow. poor people. It blows your mind. And I'm, I'm a... There's a lot of jokes we can make, but there we are, I know, yeah. I'm kind of overwhelmed. If, if Shane was here, we'd be talking about alcoholism right now. But yeah, you know. it's partially funny, can, but partially you know, it's really heartbreaking too. I don't know what happens if these people drink. Well, the one with cirrhosis of the liver probably wasn't drinking anyway. Yeah, no, she wasn't drinking. Yeah. Yeah, oh. absolutely. So um, I think um, if you, you know... If you did have this and, you know, I was wondering, you know, could you induce this, you know, by yourself, by taking a load of antibiotics, you know, having a load of sugar? Not that you'd ever want to, but what would then happen if you then drank? 
Would you get really, really drunk? I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, it's super, super interesting case. So, you know, rare diagnosis coming out all the time. This was actually presented as on a patient on Grey's Anatomy. So, you know, it's really getting some airtime now. Yeah. Well, then I really understand it. Exactly. That's, That's why I understand it. Okay, folks. So <laughs> we're going to take a break for some music. When we come back, we'll have our first guest in the studio. That'll be James Fallon, the research director of the Bionics Institute. He'll be talking about bioelectric neuromodulation. If you don't know what that is, stick around. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo on 3RRR. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Einstein and Gogo. So in the studio, we have with us Associate Professor James Fallon, who's the Research Director of the Bionics Institute. Welcome, James. Thank you. Thanks for coming back. And so soon, you were just here a few months ago. Obviously, you can't get enough of me, which is great. Obviously, we can't. <laughs> we like hearing about what's going on in the Bionics Institute. There's some cool stuff happening in the city, and it's good to hear an update. Yeah, well, it's, it sounds very sci-fi to me. So can you just give us an overview of what is going on in the Bionics Institute? Sure. So we're the, we were the Bionic Ear Institute formerly, uh, so the home of Melbourne's cochlear implant, which turned into cochlear the company. Uh, unfortunately, we don't actually have any shares in the company. Still. That Otherwise, is unfortunate. rolling in money, and I wouldn't be having to write grants all the time um, but we are we've taken that heritage and basically uh, the the tagline I often put out there is we'll stick an electrode anywhere we think that might help and stimulate it and try and cure disease so uh, ranging from bionic eyes which um, Dr Laura who's on quite often here has uh, Lauren has spoken about um, deep brain stimulation trying to improve that uh, more recently in the, in the stuff I'm most interested in at the moment is is going below the neck so for the first time the institute went below the neck we're stimulating things like the vagus nerve the pelvic nerve um, things like that to treat um, more long-term conditions. Before we get onto that, I'm wondering why it took so long to move below the neck. What well, normally the brain is probably the most complicated part. Why? Why are we focused on that for so long? Yeah, uh, so partly because we, we came out of the Department of Otolaryngology at the University of Melbourne. I'm so sorry, can you just say that again? <laughs> Otolaryngology, ear, nose oh. and throat, oh, okay. for those of you playing Yeah, I'm like, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> uh, so as an engineer, it took me an awful long time to learn how to spell that. Um, but yeah, otolaryngology, ear, nose, throat. Um, and so there's a University of Melbourne department based at the Royal Victorian Ione Hospital, which is where Graham Clark first came yep. up with the concept of the the cochlear implant and while it's the, the brain the head certainly is more complicated um, there's actually some really immediate and direct feedback you get when you stimulate things in the in their eyes or the ears so we can stimulate your ear and you can tell us straight away did you hear it yes or no so there's a really nice immediate kind of feedback on that which makes in some ways easier to develop stimulation for because we know what we're doing if we stimulate it and you don't hear it we, it didn't work if we stimulate and go oh that's a little bit too loud we can turn it down uh, if we stimulate and go i can hear it but it doesn't make any sense to me then we can start to modify exactly how we're stimulating um and obviously we when the concept of a bonic eye first kind of went past our desk it's like well we just move the stimulator around a bit from the ear to the eye all the other kind of technologies aren't too dissimilar but you know what the eye is actually a lot harder than the ear so when you move below the neck, the, the vagus nerve is for chronic pain management, right? Or that's one of the potential... So the vagus nerve, yeah. as the name suggests, is, is a wandering nerve and it innovates all your viscera. So all, all the things that we don't think about all the time, we don't have a lot of conscious percepts of, is what it's innovating. So your guts, your liver, your heart, your lungs, all those things that keep us alive uh, that we often don't actually really know about, that's what it's innovating. Um, and so, again, that's one of the challenges is there is because we don't have much con con conscious percept of that that when we stimulate it, we don't know whether it's stimulating it or not. And that was certainly one of the, the long challenges that the field faced that we, we actually think we've cracked now. Which is how to stimulate the vagus nerve. 
how to stimulate the vagus nerve. Which is a wandering nerve. Which is a wandering nerve. Um, so lots of people stimulate it at the level of the neck. Yeah, so, I was going to say, where do you do it? Um, so traditionally it's been stimulated at the cervical level, at the level of the neck, uh, which is great. You have two vagi, a left and a right. Mm-hmm. If you stimulate the right vagus, you tend to kill people because it will affect the heart and the breathing so much. <laughs> um, so people tend to stimulate the left vagus. And, it, and it's a, a pre-therapy for things like epilepsy uh, and migraines and a few things like that. Um, but it's also one of those ones, and it's now being uh, trialled for things like inflammatory bowel disease and a few of those more chronic inflammation-based diseases. Um, but one of the kind of strange things people do is the way they adjust the stimulation level, because you can't feel the nerve being stimulated, um, they turn up the stimulation until you start to go hoarse. So you, your voice goes hoarse, and that's the level where they go, oh, we know we're activating the nerve now. We'll just turn it down just a smidge, but we'll leave it about there. So patients know when the stimulator comes on and off by the fact they go hoarse or not hoarse. And uh, and clinicians go, it's great because we know we're stimulating the nerve. And we go, well, that's not great because that's not the target that we're after. Um, and so one of our innovations has been to move our site to below the diaphragm so we avoid those off-target effects. So now that you're away from the brain, how do you start to know when you are having effects? I mean, is this... An ex- a very developed computer model about how the nervous system works below the brain, or how do you how do you learn how to do that? Because I imagine there's other areas you're exploring other than than just the vagus nerve. C- correct, and and so that's where we've leveraged our, our long history in things like cochlear implant stimulation. Where, while yes, we can stimulate the, your auditory nerve, and you can say yeah, I can hear it or not. There are some populations where that's really hard, like small kids or or people with other disabilities who can't report, and so they developed technology technology to record electrically evoked compound action potentials, which is basically stimulate the nerve, record the response of the nerve using the same equipment, same electrodes, same hardware. And so all we did was take that technology from out of the ear, put it on our electrodes that now go but you know in your gut, and we can record the same thing. So we can stimulate the nerve and see the response we've initiated in that nerve and know we're definitely stimulating. We can't necessarily tell what it's going to do, but at least we know we're now stimulating. So you're listening to the gut. Sort of. Uh, we're listening to the nerves that are innovating the gut because okay. the nerves that innovate the gut have all the information you need. So is this what you're referring to as eavesdropping on the Well, no, eavesdropping system. is even more advanced. So this is a we stimulate the nerve and we record its response, but it means we had to stimulate it to record that response, which means we've disrupted what it's meant to do. So one of the things we'd really love to be able to do is actually just eavesdrop on the nerve, not stimulating it, just listening on the activity that's going up and down that nerve so we can tell when your gut's getting inflamed or your bladder's getting full or any of those kind of things. But that's a, a pretty difficult task to do. Um the, the best description I've kind of ever heard about a, a nerve is um, a box of bags of spaghetti. So if you think about each nerve as being an individual strand of spaghetti, inside packets, inside a box, that's what a nerve is like. And we're trying to record the activity from a single single strand of spaghetti. Traditionally what you do is just stick an electrode all the way through the box into the bag right up to one little piece of spaghetti. Obviously really invasive. Uh, when we do these evoked stimulation responses, we actually stimulate and then record the response. And so what we're developing is technology that basically sits on the outside of that box. So on the outside of the nerve, we need to put it in a, a few extra electrodes. So instead of having just one or two electrodes, we need to put in four, five or six electrodes. And then using some smart models and some smart computation, we can then extract signals out of those nerves to tell uh, not only is the activity going up or down the nerve or what type of nerve is firing. Is it a big nerve or a little nerve? So when you say electrodes, though, the, the, instead of applying electricity, they're effectively becoming sensors. They are. The okay. reason is recording electrodes. Or, oh. in, or ideally, they're doing double duty. So they record, we listen in. When we see there's something going wrong, we can then stimulate. 
All right, so if so many strands of spaghetti in their packets, in their box, I don't even want to wonder about whether they're raw or cooked and how brittle they might be. Um, how do you, like, and with so many problems to work towards, which one are you deciding to kind of focus on now in terms of low-hanging fruit or the thing that you really think this technology or this approach could, could help solve the problem? Yep, so, for lot, so the Institute is interested in developing these neuromodulation devices. So this is stimulating those nerves, either the vagus or the pelvic. And so all of those could benefit from a technology where you could actually sense what's going on from the nerve and then decide what to stimulate. At the moment, you either need an endoscope or some other kind of you know, invasive measure. Um, at the moment, though, because we're still developing technology, we're actually using our understanding of biology to use a system that gives us a good control on what activity goes up and down that nerve. So in collaboration with Janice, Janet Keith's lab at the University of Melbourne, we're using the bladder. So the bladder, which is innervated by the pelvic nerve, or the, the bits of the bladder we're interested in, innervated by the pelvic nerve, and we can either fill the bladder, empty the bladder, we can inflame the bladder, do a whole bunch of different manipulations to the bladder, and using our technology, record the pelvic nerve, and then extract different types of signals from different types of nerves innovating different bits of the bladder. And could this ever be used sort of down the track for patients with urinary incontinence? Most, most definitely. So all the institute is really a translational focused institute. If I go to basic science, I have to explain to my CEO why I've gone basic science, not translational, which is which is fine. Um, that's why I'm at a translational institute, not at a, at a university. And so definitely our technology in terms of our electrodes are, are pretty blunt instruments. Yep. They're chunks of silicon with bits of platinum in uh, the same technology that's been around for the last 40 years but we know it's robust and rugged and therefore if we can get it to work we know there's a, a quick path into 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 the clinic and certainly that's the other one of the great things about the institute we're based over at St Vincent's Hospital so we have clinicians of every variety we need on different floors. And so for incontinence would you be implanting that device? Yep so certainly what the the, the ultimate aim would be would be would be to implant a device on the pelvic nerve. We would sit there monitoring the pelvic nerve. Uh, when it senses your bladder is getting too full, uh, it might in initiate a blocking type stimuli, which would then stop you accidentally voiding in a socially inappropriate time yep. uh, and let you know via you know, your, your, your smartphone on your app that your bladder is getting full and you might, might need to do something about it. Uh, and then when you are in a socially appropriate time, uh, initiate stimulation, which would then initiate a void uh, and you can do what you need to do then. Oh, wow. So you're thinking there would be a smartphone app for that. Yep, definitely. So so you can know, you know, because sometimes it's not appropriate to void and sometimes yes. it is uh, and you need some feedback about when that is and, and how to control that. But you're a little way away from We are certainly surgeons. a ways are away from that. In the mouse model stage or just in the... We're actually in a rat model at the moment just because they're a little bit bigger. Mm -hmm. Mice are really small and the pelvic nerves are tiny. So we, we need a little bit of space. Um, and certainly it, it's uh, from our other studies, you know, the rat is a good model to transition through to, to the larger species. And if you can pick up the individual sounds of the different things that the bladders are doing, you can kind of translate that across. Yeah. So it's separating is the bladder getting full from is the bladder being inflamed? Because if your bladder is being inflamed, there's no point in me trying to make it void and empty. You probably need to do something else to reduce that inflammation. So it's teasing apart those different signals. Hmm. James, that's such, such cool research. Thank you so much for coming back on the show to talk to us. We've been talking to Associate Professor James Fallon from the Bionics Institute. We'll take a short break now and we'll be back with our next guest um, after this track. You're listening to Einstein Agogo Go on 3RRR. Triple RRR on FM, digital, online and via the app. We are back and you're listening to Einstein Agogo Go on 3RRR. In the studio with us, we have Dr. Maureen Chader, a postdoctoral research fellow from the Bionics Institute in Melbourne. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So your research focuses on the cochlear implant and the effects of ageing 
on, well, hold on, I'm just going to read what I've got in the bio for you. Because you can then unpack this for us. Sure. The impact of aging on the perception of sound and speech in an adult cochlear implant users. Okay. So to start breaking that down, can you first tell us a little bit about the cochlear implant? We know that that's going on from the in the Biox Institute from just speaking to James. But what is that, and what's the difference between cochlear implant and a hearing aid, for example? Right. Sure. So a uh, cochlear implant is a prosthetic device. So that's really the main thing that sets it apart from a hearing aid. So there's two parts of a cochlear implant. So you have the external piece that sits on the ear that you can see, and that's actually very similar to a hearing aid because it has a micro phone that picks up sound in your environment, and it transmits that into a digital signal. Now with a cochlear implant, you have the internal device as well. So it's an implant that is um, made up of a receiver and also an electrode that's actually implanted and threaded into the cochlea. And the external device sends these digital signals through to the internal device, and it stimulates the auditory nerve directly via electrical pulses. Okay, and it's known that these implants are so successful in children, right? And mm-hmm. do, they, do they last a lifetime in children? They do. So they are designed to last a lifetime. So if you get implanted as a child, um, you know, six to one year old, six months to one year old, um, it's it's designed to last a lifetime. We haven't gotten there yet, so and. And the speech of the children who get fitted really early, Mm -hmm. is that always been... Usually. Yeah. So if you, uh, there's usually like a critical window where if you get implanted before the onset of speech development, so uh, right around 12 months of age, some of these kids are completely age appropriate in their expressive language and communication. It's really quite amazing. So it's a little bit different in adults, though. Yeah. Well, Which yeah. is what you're focusing yeah. on. This is going to be my question. So in terms of who uses a cochlear implant, is it largely for children, largely used in children and, and for the rest of their lives, obviously? Or do you find, um, you know, adults coming to you? With age-related cochlear. hearing loss. With yeah. age-related, is that age-related hearing loss mm-hmm. or, um, you know, have, have had hearing issues their whole lives? So it can be both. Uh, but you're right that more and more uh, adults and even more and more older adults into their 60s, 70s, and even into their 80s uh, are getting cochlear implants. And that is because uh, it used to be just for profoundly deaf people. And now, um, because of the advances in technology, the kind of the candidacy for cochlear implants has really expanded. Mm-hmm. And so people can, who have uh, more and more levels of residual hearing, can actually get cochlear implant and uh, and really benefit from it. So we see a lot a lot of people uh, into their adulthood. And that would be patients them. progressing from a hearing aid probably through to a cochlear implant. Usually, yeah. I would say. But there are some cases where um, you have something called a sudden sensory neural hearing loss where some people wake up overnight and they've lost hearing completely. Um, and in that case, you can also get a cochlear implant. So I would imagine in, in, in terms of the patient outcomes, you there actually probably is, aren't too many issues about speech since they already had developed speech with hearing. In in adults. In adults. Mm-hmm. Um, so it depends on the adult. Really? So if okay. they if they've had hearing loss for a very long time, okay. and uh, perhaps they've lost some of their uh, their neurons that are part of their auditory nerve that are in their cochlea, if they've lost some of those, then essentially they've lost some of their uh, potential to get really really good um, benefit from their cochlear implant, and so. Uh, that's why we keep saying, you know, the sooner the better when you get a cochlear implant. 
Does that mean then that in terms of the cochlear implant use, that also depends on the individual? I suppose with children, well, maybe not, maybe I'm, tell me if this is wrong, Mm but uh, is there an extra tailoring or extra personalization that's required for older patients needing the cochlear implant than for children, for example? So uh, I think, and we think yes, and um, that is something that our research is is focusing on, Mm -hmm. is that at this point, um, there really is kind of like a one-size-fits-all approach to um, how you Uh, program and kind of manipulate the device settings after someone gets a cochlear implant. Um, It's called mapping. And how you map a cochlear implant is pretty standard um, across all individuals. There is a little bit of differences with a child, of course. but um, And so what what we're working on is really trying to identify what are the differences between individuals that are really important and how can we kind of optimize their device settings to uh, maximize their benefit on an individual basis? And that's not something that is um, uh, really done right now. And what sort of differences do you mean? Do you kind of mean outward facing differences that you can see in terms of speech development or different types of hearing impairment? Or are you looking internally at the neural level? So we're we're actually going to, we're looking internally. Okay, right? so cool. we're trying to kind of expand what is the usual kind of um, outcome predictors, which is how long have you been deaf? Um, how old were you when you lost your hearing? Uh, how Did you use a hearing aid or not? And those kinds of things can can help us predict how well someone's going to do. But we're, we're trying to look at um, right after someone gets a cochlear implant, can we run a battery of tests on them and identify where in their auditory system is this limitation, a, a potential limitation occurring? Uh-huh. And if so, can we, you know, come in with an intervention right away, right after they get their cochlear implant, either by changing the signal processing on their device or um, implementing some kind of training, like a therapy program, auditory training, uh, to help optimize their outcomes. So what's the failure rate then? I just kind of assumed you pop the cochlear implant in and, and it worked. It's That's worked. what I thought too. It's, it's magic off, off the Can goes. you put a percentage on it? I'd say for... For most people, it does work fairly well, but um, at least in the clinic in Australia that we uh, that we work with, there's about 30% of people who get a cochlear implant don't do great. And that's is that always sort of in the older bracket? No, not always. Okay. Not always, but um, age, and that's something that I uh, studied for my PhD was the effect of, of old age on your uh, outcomes with a cochlear implant. But yes, age also yeah. uh, can matter. And that sometimes is just because of age, but also because older people tend to have been or have experienced hearing loss for much longer yep. than younger people. So that that's also a factor. Mm. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about your work. Um, thanks for coming on the show. We've been talking to Dr. Maureen Shader from the Bionics Institute in Melbourne. After the break, we'll be talking to our last guest, Dr. Catherine Snow, about COVID-19. So stick around for that. You're listening to Einstein Agogo on 3RRR. RRR on FM, digital, online and via the app. Welcome back, everybody. Um, you're listening to Einstein Agogo on 3RRR. With us in the studio, we have Dr. Catherine Snow from the Melbourne School of Population and Global Health at the University of Melbourne. Welcome, Catherine. Welcome back. Hey, great to be back. So um, you're an epidemiologist analysing causes and prevention of disease outbreaks. So 
coronavirus, COVID-19. so busy. <laughs> I know, it must not be an average day at the office for you right about now. Uh, it's not. I mean, I'm lucky I'm not working on this directly, but even just keeping up with the news and keeping on top of what's happening is, you know, becoming kind of an extra job for everyone at the moment Yeah, I'm so like, much is going on. I'm obsessively checking the news right now. I saw yeah. this morning there was the first death in the United States. I shouldn't make out like it's exciting. It's not. But <laughs> but there's a lot going on. There's a lot going on. So this has just been labelled by the WHO as a public health emergency of international concern. So maybe we can start with what makes, what does that mean? And what is so different about this virus, which is making it into this public health outbreak? Yeah, definitely. And I think it's probably something that a lot of people are struggling with at the moment is to make sense of some of the terminology because public health emergency and pandemic are words that really get people on edge and are making a lot of people very afraid. And I think it's important to understand that a lot of this terminology is terminology that WHO are using to communicate with governments and saying to governments, hey, this is a big deal. We need to all get ready. We need to all think about what we're going to do. They're not intending to scare the pants off the general public, but that is to some degree what's happening. And a lot of people, especially after things that have gone on this week, are starting to feel really, really concerned. So is there a sort of uh, presumably there are thresholds that the WHO uses for these kinds of things and Maybe this is a dumb question to ask, actually. Is there something after pandemic? Yeah, look, this is, it does sound very black and white, doesn't it? Mm. And sort of the, the threshold that we've crossed over the past week is that we've gone from a situation where community transmission was only occurring in China to a situation where community transmission is now occurring in Italy, in Iran, in South Korea and in Japan. There's still a long way to go between the scenario we're in right now and the scenario some people might be imagining, which is a 28 days later Mad Max kind of scenario but I think a lot of people have a sense that like it's all blowing up which is not the case but it is changing. So the community transfer component is that related to a change in the way that the virus behaves or the change in the way that people are behaving? It's just sort of a natural consequence of a virus like this that is relatively infectious. You can't keep a lid on it forever. Um, China did incredibly well in having such a huge response from the very beginning that has slowed this down and slowed the entry into other countries. But some degree of community transmission was probably always inevitable and we can expect to see community transmission in Australia as well, probably. Could we take a step back and talk about the virus for a little? Because We have the flu everywhere, and we don't call it a pandemic now. And the flu's been around for a while. Everybody can get a flu shot. Um, And and, then there's some natural immunity. So could you maybe just walk us through kind of what we understand about COVID-19 right now in terms of infection rates, what it means if you get sick and those type of things? Yeah, absolutely. So... Part of the reason that governments have had such a big response to this is because it is a new virus and we don't know everything about it yet. Like the course of flu is relatively predictable. The course of this has been unpredictable. So it's it's a coronavirus, which means it's related to SARS and a couple of viruses that cause basically just colds. Um, but it is its own thing. So... We think at this stage that about 20% of the people who get this virus get seriously ill and about 80% basically just have a cold or a relatively mild illness. Um, And maybe 1% to 2% of people who are getting this new virus are dying, which is a bit more serious than the flu. Um, But we don't know yet how far it will spread. I mean, this coronavirus or COVID-19, it's not as severe as, say, the SARS um, outbreak that we saw, but is... Is what 
is making this different, the fact that there are so many people who are asymptomatic, so that's why it's been able to spread so quickly? We don't think that asymptomatic people are spreading the virus, or at least that that's not happening often or on a large scale. Probably what's happening is that, and this is something you see here, people who just have a cold think, oh, I'm not that sick, Mm -hmm. so they go to work. Yep. You know, or they go to church, um, as one very big cluster in Korea has been attributed to. So, yeah, it's not asymptomatic spread. It's more just that most of us, when we have a cold... We do we still, still go, go about our yeah, normal activities, which with this one we really shouldn't but in, be doing. <laughs> but with SARS, because you were so much sicker, then it was a sort of natural self-isolation and yes, containment. exactly. So I assume that everybody now who's got a bit of a cold, who actually I think is... I've got one right now. Exactly. Most people I've spoken to in the last week have said, oh, I've got a bit of a cold. Does that mean they should be... Staying at home. Staying at home. Yes. Even and though... we should be doing that anyway, really. People mm-hmm. should not be coming to work with colds in general. People certainly shouldn't be coming to colds with work this year. So, so the implication about cold is people always go, oh, I have to work. They might say either financially, although they may or may not have sick days, but financially I have to work. Or, oh, that's really important. It has to get done at work. Yeah. But if you're sick and you have a reasonable chance of now making other people sick... Business-wise, it makes no sense for you to go to work. You're not helping the business. You're not helping your job by going there. You're actually probably helping them more by staying home and getting better. Is that correct? Yeah. And I think we also have to think about workplaces themselves, that workplaces need to be supporting people to stay home and they need to be structuring their work in a way that people can stay home and people don't feel that tremendous pressure to come into the office. So as an epidemiologist, what are the Victorian government guidelines and how do epidemiologists sort of, you know, talk with the government about what policies of containment should we be having? Yeah, so look, I think something that people need to be aware of and sort of be ready for is that the policies are probably going to change quite significantly over the next few months and the communication is going to change. And that might sort of freak people out a bit because we've had this policy of containment so far of banning flights from China and this real kind of containment mindset. Probably what we're likely to see now, especially if we get community transmission, is moving to more of a, you know, slow down transmission and more of like a mitigation mindset. So the focus is going to be less on kind of protecting Australia from outside transmission and more about how do we slow down transmission within Australia. So people need to be ready that those messages and those policies are going to change quite a bit over the next few months probably. A government policies on how you on testing on who's a case is that is that changing what's happening yeah there? it will so at the moment the recommendation has only been to test people who have come back from china or who've mm-hmm. been in contact with a known case probably soon we'll see that expand once we see community transmission because now in italy and iran they're seeing cases that aren't linked to travel and so that's a big change in who you test right because it's not going to be restricted anymore to have you been to china it's going to be are you having these symptoms so some of the other things that other changes you might see. So as it slowly spreads throughout the globe, does that mean you'd see less travel restrictions at some point? Yes, probably. Because at a certain point, once most of the transmission's happening in the community, rather than linked to travel, the focus will shift away from travel and more onto things like schools or big events, um, people going to work. We're going to hear a lot about washing our hands <laughs> um, and a lot about not touching our faces. Well, well, yeah, so on. that's a great point. Let's Becca, get to that. What, why is washing your hands so important? Right. So this is something a lot of people seem to be confused about. Because it's a respiratory virus, people imagine that it's airborne and then you get it by breathing in. That's not the case Which with is why virus. everyone's wearing the face masks. Exactly. That's not really helpful for this kind of virus. The way that you get a virus like this is, A, from someone sneezing in your face, like directly in your face, um, but much more likely 
I sneeze into my hand. Laura and I shake hands. Half an hour later, Laura wipes her nose. Laura's got my virus. So that's why if Laura washed her hands in that time, she would have been protected. Jeez, but Laura, the face mask on. wouldn't have helped I know. Her. I need to carry some hand sanitizer every time I shake hands with people now. Well, let's back up on that. Does hand sanitizer work for that or is it better to wash your hands or are both effective? Um, soap and water is just as effective as alcohol hand sanitizer. Um, because people are getting so concerned, a lot of pharmacies are actually already sold out of alcohol hand sanitizer, but soap and water is just as effective. Okay. So... Maybe this is another mean question. If you had to speculate, how can you imagine, if we get you in in a few more months to talk about this problem? Where will we be? Yeah, how do you imagine this playing out? You must be running different scenarios or being asked about this from people much more important than us. A lot of people are, there's a lot of work going on about, you know, what can we expect in Australia? I think there's still a whole range of scenarios that are possible. It's possible that we might not see widespread community transmission in Australia. We have a very, very strong health system. We've got travel restrictions in place at the moment. We may not see it really take off here. Um, We may see it take off and we might experience something like a bad flu season. Um, So that's sort of something that people can put in mind as think about, well, what was 2009 like? That might be the type of thing that we experience. So when you said flu, that, that, that we had a discussion at work the other day because everyone's talking about it. And the comment was, maybe you should make sure you get your flu shot because you don't want to have both. Absolutely. Yes. And that's definitely on everyone's minds in the US. Our flu season is still quite a few months away, but making sure that the peak of the flu season and the peak of this don't happen at the same time will be very important. So there'll also be a lot of messaging about get your flu shot, you know, to take the strain back off the health system. And as I understand it, the flu shot that is available now is actually for last season's flu. So we'll need to wait for a month or two until we get the vaccine for this season's flu. Our flu shot usually doesn't come in until about April because our flu season usually takes off in sort of July, August, September. So yeah, we've got a, a while to So presumably there'll either be a lot of extra flu jabs coming into Australia or they might be rationed. Could you imagine that? I I wouldn't. I don't know. I'm not a flu researcher. I wouldn't expect that. But I I think we could expect a lot of messaging and a lot of encouraging get your flu shot, you know, Mm. because that'll be a key thing for the health system. Yeah, I was thinking about the double infections. That's could be a problem and also how hospitals are going to prepare to treat patients with coronavirus. Because, of Mm. course, you know, when the flu system, um, you know, you know, when, when it's flu season and you're a, you know, a doctor and you have to treat people with flu, you're vaccinated, you're immunised, so you have that natural immunity. But in hospitals where you're treating, where you're a doctor or a nurse treating patients with coronavirus, you, you know, of course, there's no vaccine yet. Yeah. So you have no... Uh, so. So are hospitals planning for that? Absolutely, yeah. There's been a huge amount of planning and preparations that's gone on. And that's also one of the th- reasons that, like as Ray said, some of the measures that governments are taking are quite different for this for the flu. That's partly because we don't have a vaccine, so we need to rely on other measures that are more about keeping people away from each other. So then we have to ask about the vaccine. Do you know, I remember there there are some efforts going on around the world to try to replicate the virus and work towards a, a vaccine. What are your thoughts on that? The timeline that I've heard vaccine researchers talking about is sort of 12 to 18 months. Yeah, that's so what I've heard too. Yeah, it's going to take a while. You yeah. can't, there's got to be safety with safety first with new vaccines. So it's got to go through certain trials. Of course. Um, I'm at the Doherty Institute where they've identified the virus first time out of China. And there's lots of efforts going on with the vaccine, but it's 12 months. Absolutely. And, and that's standard, wouldn't it be, for any kind of new yeah. vaccine? Right? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. And I think, again, that comes back to preparing the health system and... 
again, that's another one of the reasons that governments are taking quite extreme measures. I think some of those measures are freaking people out because they're going, whoa, like Japan's just closed schools for a month. This must be a huge deal, right? And people are interpreting that as I must be in danger. But what it actually is, is this is a risk to the health system and governments are taking these steps to try and protect the health season system from a huge spike in cases. So don't freak out, but make sure you wash your hands. Yeah, yeah that's the message. Pretty that's, much. Well, that's okay. the key message. <laughs> We could pretty much talk about all day about all the consequences that there's going to be of COVID-19, economic, you know, you can, I can imagine the population of, you know, the school where you work, Catherine, just everybody just stopping what they're doing right about now and getting on board into researching this. Um, it's so interesting, but we're out of time and we're going to have to hand over to the team at Eat It. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, thank you, Dr. Ray. Dr. Laura, it was fun. It was fun. Dr. Lyndon? Always good to be in here with you, Dr. Laura. I think actually next week as well, so we don't have any Dr. Shane this week, and next week he's not coming International in either. Women's Day. It's International Women's and Day. And all my conferences so, are being cancelled because of coronavirus, so <laughs> be in the studio. So shameless, two weeks shameless. in a row. Yeah. Oh, Devastating. Shane, if you're listening, we, we miss you, but, you know, don't yeah, worry and, about it. And, and, and we hope that archery contest is going well. Yeah, we hope that's a, <laughs> yeah. a code for, uh, we don't know. So I'm Dr. Laura. Thank you so much for tuning in for All Things Science. We'll be back next week. So until then, this is Einstein Agogo. Remember, science is everywhere. And thank you to list for listening to 3RRR. Hi, this is Dr. Shane. Thanks for listening to the podcast of RRR's Einstein Agogo, a weekly radio show exploring the wonders of science and its impact on the world. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Einstein Agogo's Twitter account or Facebook page.